Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 98. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, our special guest is none other than Ben Cornish, all the way from Exeter, Devon. Before we get to my conversation with Ben, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. If you're a juggler, why aren't you a member of the IJA? They're a great group of jugglers who put on wonderful festivals and have products and do educational services for jugglers around the world. All right, no more brouhaha. Drop everything. Get ready for Ben Cornish. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast. My special guest, Ben Cornish for podcast number 98. Hi, Ben. Hi, Dan. Now, I have a question about your name. I was doing my research. Your name was listed as Ben Budara Cornish. What's the story behind that? Well, that's right. Well, the Buddha, Buddha part is that I was uh, a Buddhist for a practicing Buddhist for 20 to 22 or three years. And so that was kind of known in the in the juggling community. And also I belong to the Ra tribe, R-A, uh, Ra, you know, like a party animal tribe, basically. Oh. So I put the two things together and it became Buddha Ra. <laughs> How is Ra representing a, a tribe? I've never heard that term just like is, yeah it was just when people used to meet each other at conventions and they were kind of a, a party animal kind of group of people we'd always meet each other by going rah you know <laughs> so it was a it was a sort of a it was a warrior cry for partying <laughs> i gotcha i gotcha i've done i could do be part of the raw tribe i think yeah back, you could back in the day maybe not, maybe yeah. not the older dan but the younger dan certainly uh had some raw in him absolutely hey speaking of younger Let's go back. Let's start um, before Ben Cornish learned to juggle. Let me tell me a little about your childhood and where you were brought up. Yeah, well, I live in the southwest of, uh, of England. I lived in a town called Exeter, uh, which is in Devon. And funnily enough, I'm next to Cornwall. So my surname is, if you're from Cornwall, you're Cornish. So I'm not from Cornwall, but I'm from Devon. But my name is Cornish. So uh, that always provided some amusement. Uh, for people. So I was uh, brought up, I, I'm in a family, there are four of us, I'm the youngest of four siblings. And um, yeah, so I was born in 63, which was a perishingly cold winter. It was one of the coldest winters in the UK ever recorded. And apparently everyone from 63 is, you know, a lot of people seem to be slightly quirky, and it, it's put down to the freezing temperatures that we were born in. And it's a beautiful part of the world. It's a fairly slow moving part of the world. People come down from London and other places. And within hours, they're falling asleep because the air here is so rich and and kind of healthy. And I live uh, near the sea now, which is a little bit further down the road from Exeter. So I haven't really moved much. You say they're Cornish. Do people ever say Devonish? Yeah, no, they don't. You're Devonian. Oh, Devonian. If you're from Devon, you're Devonian. And if you're from Cornwall, you're Cornish. Yeah. And when did juggling rear its head in your life? Did you, you see it before you learned it? When was your first experience witnessing the art of juggling? quite late in some ways I used to hang around quite a lot in uh, extra when I was young in the joke shop you know comedy is my first love really before juggling I was a comedy aficionado with a huge love for Laurel and Hardy particularly more than anyone and Buster Keaton but anything that was funny on television and I was the you know class clown I was always in trouble at school for you know trying to make everybody laugh and stuff like that so I was constantly in trouble but I used to hang around in the joke shop in Exeter and the joke shop one time had some beanbags and I must have been about 17, 18 or something like that. 
and I just like the look of them. And I could think I like the idea of juggling. I'd not really seen it or come across it much at all at that point. I'm talking about in the 70s now, or maybe even early 80s, maybe 1980. And so I bought these bean bags, and they sat on my shelf for probably two or three years before I picked them up and did anything with them. I went to New York to visit my sister who was living there in 1980, 81. So I was 18 years old and she had a friend who came around and they said, um, I can teach you how to juggle because it came up in the conversation. And they took me to another room and they had three beanbags and they went one, two, three, drop, drop, drop. And I just thought, oh, that's too boring. I, I want to learn how to juggle, not how to drop things. So with youthful arrogance, I, I didn't even really attempt it. And then several years later, when I was studying theatre at college, it came round again and I thought, oh, I'm going to learn it. And then I did. Did you consider yourself a, an easy learner? Did it come naturally or did you have to work at it? No, I had to work at it. I found it very difficult. I always loved catching things as a kid. It didn't occur to me till I've been juggling a long time, but I loved playing catch when my brother's used to play cricket in the garden. I wasn't really allowed by my mother because the ball was too hard and I might get hurt. So instead, she sort of bribed me by saying, well, if we can have fun, you can play catch with me. Hmm. I used to play catch for hours, you know. Yeah. So and I really enjoyed that. There's something satisfying about catching something. It's just one of those things. And I always like kind of ball stuff. I think I'd seen somebody spinning a ball quite early on and just thought that was cool. Didn't think anything more of it, but I'm pretty sure I saw it. But never really seen any juggling uh, until a bit later. So, yeah, I suppose. But I so I didn't learn until I was 20, 21, maybe. I hear that you went to the Circo Media. So obviously juggling became very serious for you or or the art of uh, circus. How did this develop from sort of this sort of late beginning? And all of a sudden, how did you come become a juggler, basically? I became a juggler because I was studying theatre at a small college in Devon called Dartington, which was a quite a radical kind very very political we did a lot of theater and I ended up studying movement because I didn't really get on with the acting tutors I went there to do acting and I did later discovered I was a terrible actor but I was quite a good performer yeah. and I've been performing since I was a child I was in Waiting for Godot when I was eight years old and I was in lots of Shakespeare plays my mother used to put on productions of Shakespeare so you know I was a kind of seasoned performer by the time I was 12 or 13 really I knew that's what I wanted to do in fact I knew when I was four that I wanted to be a performer I'd seen a piece of theatre when I was very young I just was fascinated by people going off stage you know where where have they gone where have they gone you know yeah. um, when are they going to come back all that and I loved the lights going down you know theatre was just totally captivating and magical for me so I knew that's what I wanted to do and I had to tolerate school for the next 16 years until I could get to the point where I could actually do theatre, which I did at college, at, you know, O-levels and A-levels, which are kind of basic exams for 16, 18-year-olds sort of thing. Then I went to this place, Dartington, and in my second year there, I started juggling with the guy I lived with. Um, we sort of taught ourselves how to pass, and we had the klutz book, juggling for the complete klutz, I think. Mm -hmm. So we had those little square bean bags, and I also had these ones I bought in a joke shop. And then we decided we would go out and do some street shows, with very basic level acrobatics, very basic level fire breathing, juggling, bit of Diablo, you know, bit of. And we had a tutor at the college we were at who he was fascinated by circus and um, sort of pre-theatre forms. They called it, you know, epic theatre and Greek theatre and festivals and spectacle, all that sort of thing. So he took a troop of us out and we all learned circus skills and we made a show called Mr. McBee's Moonstruck Menagerie. Uh, and I became the evil juggler in it. Now you say you and your partner learned to pass. Are you saying with balls? Because yeah. to teach yourself to pass clubs without any teacher would be 
quite difficult. It was. It was, there weren't even any videos. We'd heard about how you could do it. And I think we worked out whether we could do one, two, three, throw to each other, one, two, three, throw to each other. Very laborious. We hmm. stayed up 10 hours one night and we got to 10 throws, I think. Let me ask you uh, something about um, kind of off the subject. But I think I heard a story about you being on a postcard as a young yeah, punk. That's yeah. right. I was on a postcard with this same guy. That's um, what I was wondering because uh, yeah. I remember that's a very sorry, iconic postcard with two young punks and they have decided to show the middle finger to the giving the bird that's right <laughs> that's a great photo yeah, yeah. and on, on the top it says greetings from london was that your look at the time that you guys were working together uh, the punk rock thing or or something different no, well obviously punk had kind of been and gone by that time in oh, a way yeah but uh, my brother was a photographer and he was in london and he was taking some pictures of punks outside iconic places like big ben and phone boxes and stuff and I said to him one time, oh, your pictures of punks are so boring, you know, they're not doing anything. Or So he said, well, you know, if you think you could do better, I went, yeah, I could. So he went, all right, we'll, we'll set it up. So we went up to London and we made these, we weren't real punks, you know, we shaved a, a sort of path down the middle of our heads and we created from these wigs. Oh. We sat up all, all evening and sprayed these wigs and then stuck them on <laughs> and found some costume, put some makeup on and we were punks for a day. Oh, that's funny. In my mind, like you had gone through this whole punk rock phase and that was you as a punk rocker. But now my, my whole illusion's been dashed. Were you a punk? No, I was a punk, but years earlier in 1977, 78, when punk came, I was still at school. I was quite young. I was 14, 15. And um, punk was the most important thing that ever happened to me. It changed everything. So, like punk music, the whole idea was you don't need to spend lots of time learning music or anything, because if you think about it at that period of time, you had Supertramp, Rush, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, all these big bands who got bloated with success and cocaine and were all brilliant musicians. And it was just a, a rock and roll thing again. You know, kids coming along saying, we've got something to say. We hate the way society is. We hate Margaret Thatcher. We're going to form a band and spit at people and be angry. And I was totally caught up with that. And who was your favorite band at that time? Me and my wife actually went and saw the Sex Pistols uh, a few oh. years back. My wife's a big uh, punk rock fan, so. Fantastic. I never actually saw the Pistols. The Jam were my favorite band. Oh, okay. Probably still are. They're more of a mod band, if you like, because they wore suits and everything. But they had a punk attitude, you know, at the beginning particularly. And the Stranglers uh, were a fantastic band. I used to like the New York Dolls as well. They were more kind of glam, really. But Do you take sort of a punk attitude into your juggling and shows, or was that totally separate? Well, not so much, but funnily enough, thinking about the books, you know, I, I want to write a book coming up after this one I'm doing about juggling, and it's going to be uh, trying to elicit the experiences of people who perform. My theory is that punk came along, and then what we call alternative comedy in this country, which is politically correct, non-sexist, non-racist kind of comedy, happened in the early 80s. And then on the back of that alternative comedy movement came a lot of street performing, and we had things called the Festival of Fools, Hat Fair, Hood Fair, all these kind of alternative uh, sort of what we call crusties, you know, people on the edges of society. So a lot of street performance came out of that movement. And it, it's my theory that, that it stemmed from punk. So it's only my theory, but uh, that's how I see it. I didn't think all comedy was necessarily like a clean comedy or how you described it. I always thought of it as more of alternative, kind of like more just out of the box crazy than clean. 
Was that your uh, your knowledge of it? Alternative no. being kind of a the thing about comedy in this country is a lot of it. A lot of it stemmed from working men's clubs. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of comedy was based on my mother-in-law. She's so fat. Blah blah blah. I gotcha. You know, that was yeah. the joke. And also a lot of racist material. So this was a movement against that. This was a movement against racism. This was a movement against sexism. This was a movement against tired old cliches, basically, and trying to find a new way of making comedy for young people instead of middle-aged beer drinking. You know, that was the idea of it. Because I think in the States, it was more sort of offbeat alternative as opposed to what you're saying, the alternative to the working class clubs that were basically so old fashioned. That's right. The, The alternative comedy you had was Saturday Night Live and John Belushi and, you know, all that stuff. So that was similar. And it was around the same kind of time, if you like. It was kind of angry and thrusting. <laughs> well, of course, the punks had a lot of anger towards society. But I think that idea of being like the, that technique is not the most important thing. Because we see that a lot in juggling now that we have a lot of wonderful technical jugglers but not as many performers anymore. Well, I, I think that there are quite a lot of us here that really took to Sean McKinney, uh, you know, for this kind of freewheeling, much more kind of devil-may-care attitude. I mean, he, he was a great juggler, but he didn't have kind of nice technique or anything. I mean, it's like the way I like to watch Toby juggle. You know, Toby is just like, I'm going to do this. He doesn't have polished technique. He doesn't follow any kind of circus school stuff. He doesn't stand right. He doesn't breathe right. <laughs> I wonder why he's so unappreciated, because I saw him at the EJC. I'm like, I've seen him over the years, but every time he seems to look a little bit different. I'm like, who's that guy? Yeah. Oh, it's Toby Walker. But he just seems like a, like a, a mystery man to me. Yeah, Toby's. I mean, I knew him when he was 14. I was helping him juggle four clubs when he was 14. And uh, he just carried on. And it was sheer willpower with Toby. You know, in, incredible stuff that he does. Totally out there. But he, he wasn't really anything to do with any scene that I'm talking about. He, he was younger than that. He forged his, forged his own path, really. I mean, I love the fact I was street performing because it always seemed like a bit of a renegade thing. You were kind of out there and, and there weren't any rules. And I think years ago, during the 80s, none of us were very good at what we did. You know, we weren't great jugglers. We weren't great acrobats. It was made up for with imagination and, um, and performing chops rather than skill chops, if you like. Let's talk about the street performing scene in England. What, what were the pitches and who did you share them with? Well, I mean, I didn't, sh- I didn't go to many places that were recognised as pitches, really. I was influenced by Covent Garden, which is the most famous place in, in England for performing, which is in London. And it's in an old sort of courtyard with, and it's a kind of grand place. That's where the you know, hardcore street performers go. But I used to perform in, on the street in Exeter and Plymouth, down in the southwest and in Bristol Bath, you might have heard of. Did yeah. a few shows there, but I didn't go to any recognised pitches. I was just performing anywhere I showed up. I performed in Nottingham. I, so I went around the country doing stuff, but most of it was in the southwest. And I also had a couple of little places that had courtyards and they were kind of, they would sell nice things there. And I would go and say, can I perform in your courtyard? And they let me do that. And I did one place for about 15 years. So it was like a street show, but it wasn't a street environment. It was a, it was a kind of shopping experience, if you like. And who were the jugglers who inspired you down at Covent Garden? Cotton. Oh, Cotton McClune. Yeah. The most important juggler I saw, without question there. Sean Gandini I saw, but I mean, I wasn't that impressed because Sean wasn't a performer. Brilliant juggler, but didn't really perform much. And I was probably more influenced by theatre than I was by street. Les Bubb was the best street performer I ever saw. The Mm. mime. Yeah, I've I've seen him, Les Bubb. Yeah. In uh, Edinburgh. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the great Mendezes. So Dave Spathaki, who then went on to do Ra Ra Zoo. 
very influenced by him. But also two weeks after I started juggling and taking it seriously, I saw Dr. Hot and Neon. Yeah, they're very another mysterious uh, duo because they were very unknown here in the States. And we had heard of them, but actually I've never met either one of them. So I've never only seen what I've seen on the Paul Daniels show with the, yeah. the banjos. That was fantastic because... When I saw them, I mean, I'd seen, so I'd seen all the jugglers I'd seen. I saw a guy called Tony Anthony, who was quite well-known in, in Covent Garden. But these are just guys who had acts, 20 minutes, maybe something like that. And I saw um, Dr. Hot and Neon, and they had a show with two halves. They did all kinds of different juggling. They did it with hats. They did storytelling. They did a big unicycle ballet with two twos and eight rings and nine-foot unicycles. You know, they did everything, and they made a whole show. It's the first time I realized you could create a show rather than just an act. You know, you could create a proper theater show out of juggling. And were they well known in the UK? Because like I say, here in the States, I don't remember ever having a show to see or, or anywhere. No, no, they, they weren't well known. I don't even know how I got to see it. There's a little uh, place, kind of almost like a community center theater called uh, the Albany Empire in London. And I happened to be in London. I saw a poster with this, these two guys. I just thought I'd go and see it cost me hardly anything to go and see it. And I was, you know, it changed everything for me, really. Do you know what happened to them? I mean, did they break up? Because I don't know if they had a very long career because I, I there's nothing about them, really. Yeah, I don't know what happened to them. I, I never heard of anything afterwards. You know, I, I just saw them. It was like a dream, really. And, and I don't hear anything like you. I saw them on, on the Paul Daniels show. So at that time, let me say, probably 85, 86, I was still at college. I happened to go to a couple of mime festivals and stuff. I'm pretty sure I saw Peter Davidson at a dance festival at Dartington. I remember seeing a juggler and it was at a dance festival at Dartington where I was studying. And I remember him being incredibly good, although I knew nothing about juggling at the time. But it was it was a bit dancey, but it was mainly juggly. And thinking back, I'm pretty sure and subsequently seeing him on other things. I think it was Peter Davidson, who, again, one of my favorite jugglers, probably, you know, in, in the mode of Bobby May. So beautiful. Yeah, I put him up on my top. I mean, my favorites always, I always go back to Chris Cremo because he was yeah. the one that made that impact on me when I was 14 and saw him on the Merv Griffin show and just like, what is that? Because <laughs> I had been juggling, but I didn't know real juggling until yeah. I saw that, you know, so. Yeah. But Peter, of course, his, his, his style and technique is so, so pristine. A wonderful juggler. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember watching, I mean, it's I've watched it dozens and dozens of times, his routine on the Paul Daniels thing. And I started to realize, wow, it's not just this pattern and this pattern, but the throw leading from one pattern to another is perfect. It's all the linking throws that he couldn't be more perfect. It's absolutely stunning piece of juggling. And one of my favorite bits is where he does five balls over one shoulder. Well, when I think of Peter, I think of like, you see a, you see a trick like the shower or the box. Yeah. And you wonder, what's his most perfect expression? And you go, oh, the way Peter Davison does it. Huh. It, just, <laughs> it just seems like the, the one up, two up, whatever it is. He just seems like have it look so good, you know? I do the shower just like Peter Davidson. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't blame you. Let me ask you, what, what impressed you so much about Cotton McClune? Because I never met him. I never got to see him juggle. And of course, tragically, we lost him last year, I think. Yeah, well, I got to know him a bit online uh, a couple of years ago. I, I got to, uh, we chatted online quite often when I wrote to him and said, man, you, you were so influential to me, you know, when, when I was a young student and stuff. But he was, um, he did this show in three languages. 
which was impressive. Yeah. He was just great with the audience. It just seemed like completely freewheeling, even though I saw his show a few times and it was like, oh, no, this is how he does it. It, it didn't appear that it was kind of rehearsed or structured at all. It just sounded like he was making it up as he went along. He was doing bits in German. He did bits in French. He was funny. He had attitude. He had a great look. I mean, that, the, the red curly hair and the... <laughs> he looked great. He did a three-ball routine, which is the best three-ball routine I've ever seen, where he had one, two white balls and one red ball, and it was all about watching the red ball would shoot up here, out here and shoot up there, go on the head, you know. And he had a very funny patter, which was kind of like, um, uh, you see some of these jugglers and they take too much cocaine. And he sort of sniffs, <laughs> sniffs up his arm while doing two in one hand and then kind of uh, hit, taps the ball, ping, 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 you know, really fast. Right. And he says, oh, or a juggler like me, you take a too much marijuana. And he, and he does the boom, boom. So he hits it with his hand, hits it with his elbow, rolls it on his head, hits it with his hand, but really in a slow, languid way, you know. Right. So really funny patter, which matched what he was doing. And that was very influential for me. My kind of three ball routine is very much based on that idea that you're speaking what you're doing, you're showing it and you're enjoying showing it. And so was your desire always to be a comedy juggler? Did you ever flirt with the idea of being like a straight uh, just juggler to music? Not at all. Not until now, maybe. But no, it was always comedy. Because partly because I got a face that's incredibly mobile. I can't stop. You know, I can't not do a lot of facial expressions and stuff like that when I'm doing it. So I kind of get known for kind of goofy faces and kind of you know big eyes. And it's just natural to me to do it that way. And I'm a very much a, a people pleasing performer. So I'm very kind of out there. I try to make every trick work kind of thing it's deliberate i think that's one thing a lot of the the other jugglers the music jugglers i mean other i'm also considering myself a comedy juggler is that a lot of times you see people juggle and their facial expression never changes it's just or, or they're concentrating they only it says i'm concentrating but they don't sell it i'm like that when i'm practicing you know i'm absolutely deadpan when i'm practicing because mm. i'm focusing on something and i'm not performing so I'm, i mean i've done put videos up and people go oh you, you know you could make it look like you're enjoying it and i say well i am enjoying it but i'm enjoying it on the inside you know <laughs> yeah you put a lot of videos on facebook and they're, they're very just straightforward just this is what i'm doing yeah. i'm not trying to be mr enthusiasm no i really appreciate how much you put out there why do you feel the need uh, i'm not I'm not questioning it but why do you do so much on the on putting your, your work out on the Facebook and stuff? No, I mean, it's a very legitimate question, partly because I'm, I make up a lot of patterns or I connect a lot of patterns, which people don't necessarily do. So I put them up there partly so I don't forget them. Mm -hmm. As a reminder, I'm interested in what people think. I always put stuff on Facebook because I'm trying to start a conversation. I'm not interested in likes. I'm interested in people saying something. Hey, let's talk about the pattern. Oh, is that interesting or is that not interesting or whatever? Which is why I liked your post because it's provoking a conversation. And for me, it's um, I'm just sharing it. I expect when I go and have a practice, I expect to come up with something I've never done before every single time I practice. I mean, I like it. I'm not questioning it as it's uh, over the top or too much. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine if you were. I wish more people did it. I just yeah. find it very interesting that like the, this uh, new thing you have. When did you start with the table juggling? How long have that that's been kind of an interest of yours? That was pretty much after my asthma attack. I couldn't stand up and juggle for more than a minute or two at a time. So I just started rolling balls around on a table and then thought, well, there's something in this. Mm -hmm. And um, I just pursued it uh, relentlessly <laughs> for months, uh, months. Is that something you perform in a show or just as a fun experimentation? I, I, I did it today, funnily enough, but in a very informal environment. But it's something I would like to be a very small cabaret act. And because I would want to do a thing where I say, you know, everyone's heard of a stand up comedian, but nobody's heard of a sit down juggler. 
so I wanted to promote myself as the world's only sit-down juggler, which I haven't really done, but I might. <laughs> That's my plan. Well, for the people who are confused, if you go on uh, Ben's Facebook page, table juggling, he's not juggling tables. He's sitting behind a table and using the table as a, a, a stand to roll balls on and place balls on. Rolling ball. People people often say it looks like they're on a conveyor belt. So that's what it looks like. Yeah, that's a nice move where you had like, I think you had five going at once. Yeah, I did. I did five today. Yeah. And kind of a conveyor belt type of thing. Let's get back to your career arc because we sort of left off. You're with your partner. You just had sort of learned to pass and started doing some shows. Is that the the, par- the partner you still have in Circus Berserkus? Yeah, no, that came much later. I mean, Circus Berserkus was my fourth double act. So my first, oh, okay. double, uh, my first double act was at college and lasted a couple of years with this guy. And uh, we were called the Banana Brothers. And we used to have this shtick where every routine we ever did, there were three of us, say we did a little juggling routine. We'd say um, at the end of the juggling routine, we'd say, ladies and gentlemen, that was amazing. It was incredible. That was astounding. It was the Banana Brothers juggling routine. Or if it's acrobatics, we'd say it's amazing, it's incredible, it's astounding. It was the Banana Brothers acrobatic routine. So it was a, like a like kind of comedy shtick that we did. And we were not very good at anything we did, but we were really quite strong performers. Uh, people really liked it. So then when I left college, I met a juggler very soon after I met, left college called John Teasdale, who was a brilliant juggler. He had a strange story. He was going to be a scientist and then he just couldn't picture himself looking down a microscope in a lab in 25 years time decided to become a juggler he knew about four tricks and he juggled his way out of an overdraft with four tricks we met we were around the same level we were both working on doing back crosses with clubs and we could both juggle five balls a bit by then and we just created a a kind of cute routine with two of us and it was around the time of the the first crash financial crash in in the uk is that 2001 or what year are you talking about? No, no, 1988. Oh, okay. Wow. So we pretended that we were we were from the city. We were masters of the universe, making huge stacks of money. Then the crash came. Oh. <laughs> we had to get out. Now we were trying to make an honest living on the street. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I get that. That's funny. Yeah. So um, we were called Two Men in a Hurry. Mm. <laughs> so that was that. And then I started working with a guy called Tony, who was 10 years older than me. And he'd done comedy stuff. And we were called uh, Expanding Suitcase was the name of one of the acts that we did. And we were called the Flim Flam Men. And Flim Flam is kind of nonsense and gobbledygook and flannel kind of thing. So like snakeskin salesman, you know? Mm -hmm. Flim Flam. We have that expression here. Like a con man. That's right. So so we were the Flim Flam Men. And we did juggling. And we were, I was talking about this last night to somebody. We were really funny people together. And when we were in social situations, we were really, really funny. We used to bounce off each other and it was great. But we could never quite bottle that up and put mm. it into our shows. It just it just didn't kind of translate into what we were trying to do. I don't know. We, we were never as good as we thought we ought to have been. <laughs> now, it seems like you like to team up with a lot of people. Do you think that comes from your theater background? Because most jugglers don't have this course. They just start solo and they stay solo. Yeah, I'd like to have teamed up with more, with a bigger group, really. But it was always an, another bloke because I understood the double act as well. And, and with all the double acts I've been in, maybe bar one, I've always been the straight man, yeah. uh, which is really odd as well, because I'm the comedy aficionado, you know. So Circus Berserkus, who I've worked with now uh, with a guy called Steve for 26 years, he was a clown and we were both performing at the same theme park at the time. And we'd alternate shows. So I'd be on at 11.30, he'd be on at 12. And you know what I mean? It'd go like that. So there'd be shows all day. And then what happened was I would be doing a show after his show. He'd gone and got his lunch. 
And then he was in full clown costume. He would walk in front of me <laughs> right. uh, eating his lunch, you know, having a burger and a cup of coffee and stuff like that. And one day I, I just said, you know, if you're going to walk in front, because the thing is, of course, when, if a clown walks in front of you, all the audience has, has gone with them. You know what I mean? Sure. Steals the focus. Yeah. yeah, steal the focus. So I used to go, you know, it was a bit like Oliver Hardy said, why don't you do something to help me? You know, <laughs> so I kind of said that to him one day and I said, look, and I think I walked up to him and I took his coffee and his burger away and I said, go and get your juggling clubs and do something useful. And we'd done a bit of passing together and stuff. We knew each other, you know. Yeah. So we did some passing. And then then gradually over that year, we, we kept on doing it. And we developed this relationship where I was annoyed with him all the time. And he would get everything wrong. And we started thinking, this is properly funny, you know. We were funnier together than we were either of us individually. So we decided to make it an act. And then we carried on. And we both do solo stuff. He is a clown, full-on clown, with the makeup and the boots and everything. Mm -hmm. And I do comedy juggling. But then we worked together. So then we found we could work a lot more of the year because we could, we got on this thing called the Rural Touring Scheme, where we would go all over the country to, like, village halls, community centres, small theatres, all this kind of thing. And we would do that in the bit... We had summer seasons, most of us, in, the, in that time where we would work from July to September. We might have a bit in Easter and we'd have Christmas. But that was the working year. Very short seasons mm. when people were on holidays. But then we found we could extend our the amount of work we could do all throughout the year. Yeah, I was wondering how that worked because I was in a team, of course, for many years. Mm. But the idea of doing solo and teamwork at the same time, I tried to do it. And it never it always seemed to cause conflicts and... Never seemed to get that good mix, but there was just different different seasons. Like you would work solo, then you would work with the team just yeah. during a per certain part time of the year. That makes sense. Yeah, that's right. And I see you have different shows with him. You have a Christmas show where you're magical elves. Magical elves, yeah. And you have one called a mismatch made in Devon. Yeah, well, we've done four shows. Actually, mm -hmm. the mismatch made in Devon is not us. It's two people who replace us when we can't do something. Oh. <laughs> now, so we had three shows. Our first show is called Comedy of Errors. And that's, yeah. that's the best show we made, you know. It was with like a K. The first Comedy with a K. Yeah, Comedy with a K. Comedy of Errors, then Funny Business, and then the last one we did was called Beyond a Joke. So in a way, it was exactly like that. We had Comedy of Errors, and it was all the first stuff we got when we started working together. So we had all our knowledge about circus and performing in one show. And then everybody had us around the country. They'd say, oh, have you got another show? So we're like, oh, okay. Well, so we're trying to generate some more material come up with a different show using the same skills i mean it was all pretty much the same it was just rearranged and and the, our, the end was always the same it was always passing clubs on a unicycle and a big suitcase the, the the end was the same with every show we did where did the big suitcase come in you're on unicycles i would stand on a big suitcase oh i see and he would unicycle because i don't unicycle <laughs> i do very poorly the first time i got on giraffe i'm like uh no yeah exactly i'm not doing this that's <laughs> exactly how it happened for me I, well i had an accident quite early on in learning and i thought uh, that's not for me even like a small roller bowler i don't like to get off the ground i want both feet on the ground when i juggle yeah the only getting off the ground is standing on a suitcase you know an upended suitcase that's dangerous yeah. for me <laughs> yeah as long as it's steady and you know thick enough i wouldn't want to do a thin suitcase yeah exactly exactly nothing flimsy or or moving and what were some of the highlights of your career you think Did you, were there some moments or shows that stand out as the ones that you look back on yeah i'm not sure i see things in that way really because mm -hmm. all this so much of the stuff i've done have been kind of pretty low level really in a way you know it's kind of theme parks, I think of myself as a kind of journeyman juggler, really, because I 
haven't had highlights. I mean, I've done stuff on a bit on TV and things like that, but they weren't really highlights. They were just another thing. I remember the most terrified I ever was, was at a convention years ago. I was on solo. I was on after a 150 voice choir ah, okay. and then me uh, and right. the ampl- amplification had broken in a, in a big, big top. So that was very scary. Yeah, so I know. Yeah, I don't know highlights. It's it's hard to say, really. I mean, I can think of shows that I've done that have just been perfect. Well, where's your favorite place to perform? Like, is there? Do you like to do a camp or a school or what kind of environments do you find yourself working in out in the UK? Well, I, I could tell you what. I, I mean, I'm good at doing shows in schools. I've done more holiday camps than anything else. I don't. I've never really enjoyed them that much. They're just a way of earning money. What What about them is not enjoyable in a holiday camp? It sounds nice. They're noisy. They're designed for drinking. Um, people put all the kids at the front so they can sit at the back and talk. Oh. So it, it's not really, it's yeah. not a theatre. I mean, theatres, when I've done shows in theatres, I've always enjoyed that because everyone's looking in the same direction and they're paying attention to what you're doing. Sure. Which is the ideal circumstance, obviously. I've done a few comparing jobs at juggling conventions and I really, really enjoyed that because there's kind of less pressure on you and I like bigging other people up kind of thing. So I see it as more like that. I mean, the, the best shows I've done have often been in, in sort of rural, of like village halls with like 200 people from a village. They all know each other. They come out for the evening. They have a drink and a chat beforehand. They brought their kids with them. Then we do a show, which is an hour and a half, more or less, two forty-five minutes. And that's a joy. That's just a joy. We had about three or four years where every, every, all, every single venue we did was sold out. That sounds very nice, actually. I mean, I, I like the journeyman jugglers. I mean, I think, you know, when I started my solo career after the Raspinis uh, sort of disbanded, I went out and did the libraries and the schools and the small little events. And mm. there's something very real about that. And I really appreciate the jugglers who go out and do those shows and represent juggling well and show people the, the entertainment value that juggling is. That is my career, Dan. That, that is it, yeah. Mm. Well, you also do a lot of workshops. Uh, what, what's the workshop scene like there in the UK? Do you know, I haven't been to a workshop probably for 20 years. I mean, oh. there was yeah. a very healthy scene in the 90s. In the early 90s, no, most towns had a juggling shop. There was a juggling... But I, I went through a period of five years where I went to a juggling club every night of the week for five years. And I, would, I do one in Exeter. Then I go to Plymouth, which is about 40 miles away. Then I went to Taunton, which is about 40 miles away. I'd stay over with friends. Then I went to another place called Totnes. And then I would come back and do the Friday night in Exeter. We had two a week. So five nights a week for several years, I just traveled around friends doing juggling. And it's all we talked about. We used to watch juggling videos. And that was, that was a joyous time. Magical. And what did you think of the American jugglers? Were there any American jugglers you were keen on or was that scene? And when did you ever come to America? Like to a festival or was all your work in the UK? I'd love to come to the IJA. And I think I would find it hilarious as well. I mean, I, I generally find... Americans funny in a patronizing English kind of way and I love you guys and you know that I love your delivery always have done I was on Barry's kind of mailing list for a while for the emails Mm -hmm. and I think your work ethic is totally different to ours I did juggling in my life because I didn't want to (laughs) work right I didn't want a nine to five I didn't want a boss I didn't want any of that you know so I did it for the freedom and that's still why I do it I work hard at it I'm very sincere when I do it but it's you know I'm not trying to achieve anything other than not having a nine-to-five job. I, I'm, I've succeeded in that sense. I think for us, like you say, it was just more access to the mechanisms of show business. Yeah. Like, I agree. I didn't want to work either. I mean, I, I saw juggling as a way to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a juggler. 
I didn't yeah. want to have a job or work for a boss. Yeah. But all the showbiz stuff like that we did, you know, the Raspini brothers, it was just sort of a natural evolution of our career. Yeah. I don't think we were driven or, or really hard workers, to be honest. I'm driven to improve what I do or make a contribution. That's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested in fame and money uh, uh, traps. They're not interesting to me. In a way, it's a bit like the five clubs or the seven balls as well. You know, it's a trap. So many people do great juggling all the way through their show, and then they do five clubs and they drop three times and the whole show's pointless. You know, they've lost it. I remember talking to a juggler once and we had watched Michael Menez yeah. do his uh, three ball routine. He's a hero. And then later on, I think he was watching Michael Menez practice like numbers or something. And he was like, oh, he wasn't that good. He could barely do seven. Or judging him by, like you say, the seven ball, five club, sort of the, the, that being the level of a good juggler. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's... <laughs> I admire that, and I think it's great, and I can see the work that goes into it, but I don't find it interesting. I think Michael Menes' routine is one of the greatest routines that's ever been committed yeah, to too. film. Ever. It's fantastic. It's yeah. so beautiful. You know, he does all the levels. He does all the different tricks. He does it He does it sideways. He does it sitting on the floor. He does it lying down. He rolls out. All of it. It's uh. It was a big game changer, because when he did it at the IGA, people really didn't have that kind of choreographed routines. Yeah. It was very, very ahead of its time. He's a quite a, a talented entertainer. But to say because he can't do five clubs, he's not a good juggler or something is ridiculous. I just think that's stupid. I think that's a macho attitude. And it's and it's ignorant, really. I don't have any time for it. You know, a, a lot of the best jugglers I've ever seen don't touch numbers. Well, I think the best advice you can give to a juggler is play to your strengths. Like if you're a numbers juggler, if that's, you know, what you seem to drive be driven towards, go for that for sure. Like a, a Jack Denger or, you know, the Jack, uh, Jonah Botnovich Greenhouse. They're amazing numbers jugglers. The way they juggle is beautiful as well, and they have great style, and I, I enjoy it. Me too. And I love watching them. And I've spoken to both of them, actually. And in the writing of this book I'm doing, they were two of the people I wanted to talk to. So I've spoken to Jack, I've spoken to Delaney, I've spoken to Jonah, I've spoken to Maximilian. So I've spoken to a lot of brilliant technical jugglers. Now, this book you're talking about, this is about practice. Yeah, it's about practicing because practice is the most important thing. Going back to being at college, studying theatre, one of the things I learned there was that, um, to me, everything is process. Product's not important. It's the process that's important to me. And so the practicing is just as important, and this goes back to the Buddhism as, as well, in a way, as a spiritual thing and as a, as a way of being, as a way of self-expression, as it is what you end up with. What comes out of your practice is one thing, but it's the time you spend practicing that's significant. Well, I always go back to a quote I attribute to Francis Brune, even though I don't know if he ever said it or not. I always say, without practice, there is nothing. That's my philosophy. <laughs> oh, I heard that. That's good. I like it. Yeah. It all starts with practice, whatever it is. You, you have to start by practicing the craft. So let's talk about that a bit, because uh, I know both you and I are very interested in practice techniques. Yep. What are some of the tips you've uh, gathered? And what is the name of this book going to be? Well, I mean, it might be called Ben and the Art of Juggling, okay, as opposed to Zen and the Art of Juggling. Uh, and the other one was called Thank F Asterisk 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 for Juggling. Ah. <laughs> I'm not sure what the title is going to be yet. I like Ben and the Art of Juggling. I like that. Yeah, well, it has a resonance with with Zen and the Art of, you know, so it's kind of like that. But I also wanted to make clear it was kind of semi-biographical because the other thing, Dan, that interested me in what I've done in the interviews is I've, like you... I've asked everybody about their early days, how they met juggling, all the rest of it. And I often think that having done that, quite often how somebody meets juggling determines the way in which they then do it. 
Interesting. Uh, could you have a, give me an example of that? What do you mean by? Okay, so I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two examples. Okay, please. So I started doing this project when I went to Circa Media, which you mentioned earlier on. I went to do an MA in directing circus. That was. What, yeah, let's talk about that. We'll get back to that because I'm interested in that as well. Yeah. So, so that's what the course was. But my final piece was kind of about practicing and I called it exposing the process. And when I worked with the people I had, I had to do it all online because of COVID. But I interviewed people about their practice. And when I was doing that, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. This is more interesting than I thought it was. So there was one guy uh, who was at Circa Media, a young juggler called Harley, excellent technical juggler, all sorts of weird, wonderful ways of juggling. He was a very shy person. He wasn't really a performer. So if he could have done, he would have stood off stage with a remote control and made the clubs do what, Hmm. you know, dance in the air without actually being there. Yeah. He was studying before he became a a juggler and stuff. He was studying architecture. So what he was interested was line and form and Hmm. shape and geometric relationships. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas another guy who was also doing helping me with the project, he got into juggling when he was uh, studying Tai Chi quite seriously and he was studying philosophy. So he was into the Zen part of juggling, you know, the kind of being in the moment and the responding to things. You see, so they both had this completely different way of seeing and being with juggling. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because I had thought that most jugglers, you know, they do it for the same reasons and they kind of get the same thing out of it. And I realized that that's totally not true. Well, if you look at like a sight swap, like for some jugglers, it's very, very important. Yeah. And other jugglers are like, side swap? Like, wh- why or what, you know? I, I wish I wish I could, but I can't. I just don't have that kind of brain. I totally... I can't either. I totally get it. I see how useful it is as a tool and I understand that, but I can't get any relationship with it at all. No, I have no, no context with it. Someone can mention the numbers or something and I'm like... Okay. And I think it's led to some wonderful innovations in patterns and sure. stuff like that. But maybe also I think sometimes things come later in your career or in your in your arc as a juggler that had you exposed to them earlier, maybe they would have become more important. But after like thirty years of juggling, you're like, I'm okay. You know, I don't really <laughs> Yeah, but that but I'd been juggling fifteen years and I was at yeah. a convention one time. And it was only then that I realized it just I happened to be in a cafe and two conversations were going on at the same time. And I was listening to I was having a conversation about music on one table, but I was kind of out of the corner of my ear. I could hear these other people talking about the Hadron Collider. I mean, they weren't talking about it like as a theoretical thing. They knew what they were talking about. They understood it. Right. So I realized that actually hundreds of jugglers, most of the jugglers I know are computer programmers, mathematicians, physics teachers, you know, they, they're they into maths. Mm-hmm. I've got no relationship with maths at all. Yeah, but obviously juggling and, and mathematics, there's something very appealing to that type of brain. Yeah, that's right. But it, I didn't recognize that for ages because I came to it from the point of view of entertainment and uh, comedy and stuff, you know, so it was very different. My entry into it was different. Therefore, how I did it was different. Therefore, how I think about it is different. Well, I could totally relate because I came through the theater as well. Like I was a, an actor and a theater student. And then I realized, oh, juggling, I can include these skills of all the comedy and, and my love of juggling. It all can fit together. Yeah. But I think the people who come through acting and performing always have a different take on it than the ones come from more of a technical, analytical point of view. And that makes complete sense. Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This thing about practicing is, so for example, some people 
which my, my practice has become more disciplined and more focused during lockdown than at any other time in the last 35 years. I would practice very, very randomly, but I practiced with some people that didn't. I practiced with a guy, John Teasdale. He did a one to five club routine. He would put the five clubs in a line on the floor. He'd kick one up, spin it on the hand, throw it over to the other hand, spin it on that hand. While he was doing that, he'd kick the next one up, spin them both on his hands, and then he'd move over to the next one. And then he'd um, kick that one up. But uh, as, it, as it came up, he'd put one on his nose. Then he'd spin the two with the one balanced on his. Then he'd go into his three-club routine. He'd do all the tricks he could do with three clubs. Then he moved over and he would kick up the fourth club, go into four clubs, all the way up to five. And if he dropped, he'd start again. Hmm. Yeah, I do that as well. I, I do like starting over. For some reason, if I'm in a routine and I'm practicing like for a show and I, I drop, yeah, I'll often start over from the beginning again. Yeah, yeah. I'm not like that at all. Maybe not the most efficient technique, but there's something about the flow of your act that, you know, is important. Yeah. You see, I've never practiced. I've always never practiced my act in order. I mean, I, I just know the order, but I can change it. I've got like six, seven segments and I can change them around if I need to or I want to. So they don't necessarily always follow the same order. You're talking about individual routines that you practice? Yeah, and I improvise a lot in shows. Yeah. The only bit that's almost the same, I do a three-ball routine, and that's, well, that's not always the same, but it's pretty much the same. It's with a bit of music, but that's quite samey. But all the rest of it, I'm, I'm doing it as I'm going along. And did you identify any like particularly effective techniques that, that the top jugglers seem to share? I think a lot of the really good jugglers do spend a lot of time with one object and really understand the passage of an object through a pattern, or they really spend time working on that, getting the shape of something right and stuff like that. I spend most of my time juggling two objects, and I totally see what I didn't before lockdown, but I, every day I spend 20 minutes and up to an hour on two objects, and I think it's really useful. You break down and you really, really understand the, the space you've got, the shape of the arc of the throws, the amount of energy you need to put into it, all that stuff. Really, really understand it. Then pick up a third ball and do those things. Are you using object like interchangeable with prop? No, balls. Balls or clubs. But when you say object, you mean like a prop. Like a, So you use what, balls and clubs are your two main practice? Yeah, main, nearly nearly always balls and clubs. I mean, there are other things, but mainly balls and clubs, yeah. And do you consider those just sort of the more building blocks or of your juggling practice and you don't feel the need to do the... The auxiliary stuff as much? Yeah, no, I don't. I don't feel the need to do the auxiliary stuff. It's it's just, and I, I think the kind of building blocks is a really nice expression as well. You know, the building blocks of the juggling, I think, are really, really essential. I don't think I always thought that, but I, I think that now, having had the experience I've had in the last few years, you know. Yeah, and I think the other thing that what I've come across is some people, for example, not a lot, but they note down bits of their progress. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to John Udry recently, and he was talking about how he makes a little graph. So he notes it down every day over a month or something. And then he can look at that month and go, oh, well, my six balls is maybe not as good as it could be. I could put a bit of extra time in there. So so if you make little graphs, you can see where you're going. It's not something I would ever do, but I notice a number of top level jugglers do do that. I like a little journal. I like a, uh, like somewhere that I can list my time per day and, you know, nothing too in depth, but uh, a note or two or just some progress reports or something like that. I think it's a good, I especially think noting the time. Like I use a stopwatch and I, I set it. And then you know, each practice session, I just started again where I left off. So at the end of the day, I know exactly how much time I put in. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I've never really, I almost never do less than an hour a day, two hours a day. 
and I probably don't do more than four these days, but I used to do six, eight hours regularly. Mm. Five or six years, I did that every day. Oh, back in the day, yeah. I used to remember I used to juggle so much that the skin between my fingers would start to crack and bleed. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to stop. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a different kind of drive, though, when you're young, I think. You don't have any concept of, of energy depletion. You know, I think when you get to 50 or 45, 50, you realize your energy is different. You know, it just is. You can't practice like that. And it would be unwise to as well, I think. Well, I think you also see a, a big difference, like for myself. Like I'm, I'm almost 60. I'm 59. Yeah. And I really like what I'm doing now, which is I've always been sort of a multi-prop juggler. Like, you know, yeah. try to do every single prop. But when it comes to practicing and trying to get good at every single prop, it's not very efficient. Right. And for the first time, I think almost in my entire juggling career, I'm focusing on a single act, like a single six minute uh, musical act. Yeah. And and I find that focus has really been so helpful. Have you looked outside of juggling to other uh, disciplines uh, and sort of compared their practice schedules to jugglers? I'm interested in sport. I mean, high level sport. I, I'm interested in that. And I'm interested in the fact that you know nearly all sports people use a sports psychologist. How many performers use a use a performance psychologist, for example, or even a coach? But yeah, like a like a coach. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some some do. Some jugglers have coaches or, or mentors, if you like. But I mean about the like the psychology of performance, for example, or the psychology of high performance or diet or exercise. You know those things. It doesn't interest me that much, but it interests me that other people might do it. <laughs> Let's go back to Circa Media for a second. Yeah. Was there a dedicated juggling teacher when you studied there? Well, the problem was is I wasn't there for very long because of COVID. Oh, so this is recently that you were at Circa Media. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I didn't train there as a, as a youngster. Gotcha. No. Rod Laver was the juggling teacher there. Uh, he does ping pong balls with the mouth. Big fan of Rod Laver. I met him years ago. I've never seen him since, but yeah. liked him as a person and I liked his act as well. Good guy. Strangely enough about Rod, he, I, I was actually at Dartington with him, Dartington College, studying theatre. Oh. And I was two years above him. And we used to run a cabaret one evening on a term, and it used to be called the Anything and Everything Night, you know, Anything Goes kind of thing. And he was quite often the compare. And he was quite a short guy, but he, was, he had a big mouth. So <laughs> we used to call him Rod Big Mouth Laver. And how ironic that later on he should use his big mouth to fit more ping pong balls than anyone else has ever put in their mouth. <laughs> I suggest to the listeners, if you haven't seen Rod's act, he has a wonderful ping pong spitting act. It's fantastic. And like you say, it sort of really shows he comes from the theatrical background yeah. because uh, we would call it mugging, you know, the, the, the faces. Yeah, that's right. But, but it's very effective. You know, it's, uh, yeah. it's fun. He has a very fun act. I like it. So I think he was more about performance than technique. I mean, Sean Gandini used to come and do some workshops. You know, he'd do, so there would be a module where somebody would come for a week or something and Sean would always do a week. But yeah, but sometimes you have an outstanding student. Like last year, there was an outstanding student and he was the main juggling tutor. <laughs> Who was that? Let's drop a name here. Who was this fella? I just can't, you know, I can't even remember oh. his name to say. He does a, he does an act with two other guys and they're bartenders. Oh. It's a bar flare act. I like bar flare acts very much. I think bar flare... Quite a lot of juggling in it. It's a brilliant act. But again, very theatrical, very entertaining. Well, there's something about using objects people can relate to. And the bar flare with the bottles and the, the, the tins. I find it kind of like even with a bottle and tin, just the two objects, very compelling to watch. I'm a big fan of bar flare. Yeah, I am too. And I, I did a little bit. I mean, I could do throw the bottle and catch it in the cup and then... 
you know, spin the cup on my hand while juggling the other bottle. And I could do the elbow taps and stuff over the shoulder throws and all that stuff. I didn't really ever get any good at it, but I, I like just messing around with it, you know. I remember when uh, Cocktail came out, which is the movie, Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. Uh, where Flair was first sort of shown. I took bartending lessons and I thought I'd become a Flair bartender. But I realized I hated serving alcohol. Yeah, no, you see, I was the other side of it. I would go around festivals with a little suitcase and a bottle of tequila, Ah. uh, encouraging people to drink tequila with me. Um, And I got very popular doing that. (laughs) This is maybe not a a very, um, more more of an adult conversation, but do you think that there's some place for the use of mind-altering substances in the juggling arts to try to unlock some sort of creativity? Well, not that we're not that we're promoting drug use at all on the IGA podcast, but yeah, no. Well, it's that's a very interesting question, and it may be for a, for a longer thing. But I, you know, I have to say that I have indulged over the years uh, considerable amounts, uh, particularly with the weed, and I found that absolutely brilliant for um, stimulating practice and thinking about things in a different way, getting a good feeling while I was doing it. And I was a a long term smoker when I was first practicing, and I found far more interesting to practice when I was a little bit off kilter than if I wasn't. And it didn't affect my coordination at all. Whereas drinking, I stopped drinking for 15 years or something in order to juggle. But I would, I would, yeah, I would use weed instead. And I do think, yeah, I do. I would, I've juggled on acid as well, and magic mushrooms. <laughs> Once again, we do not, we're not promoting the use of drugs, but it's an interesting question no. because even here they're sort of experimenting with micro dosing for advanced yeah. enhanced creativity and enhanced effectiveness and stuff like that so just where i was at the time and i t- i do see a place for it and i like you say but it's not in, not in case of encouraging it's an, it's an individual choice for me it wasn't to do with anything else but yeah i think alcohol is terrible for it though but you have two other likes listed i looked at your facebook page it says you like family friends champagne but it says you like guarana and Agua, A G. I don't know what those things are. A G W A. What are, what's Corona and Agua? Agua is a drink that's like like a grown-up version of tequila. It'll give you the energy, but it doesn't make you so mad if you like. And Corona is an energy thing, like they chew it in, ah. in the Bolivian desert or whatever, not in the desert, you know, in rainforests. So it's like an energy thing. It's it's like it's like caffeine, um, but instead of caffeine, gives me the shakes. So I I have this Corona drink which is completely legal, you know, but it's just a kind of, it kind of picks you up. It's a pick-me-up kind of drink. And when did you start in uh, Buddhism? And do you feel that that informs your juggling in some way? Yeah, without doubt. I mean, I meditated, I chanted, I used to chant for 20 minutes at least every day. And at at the height of my practice, I was doing four or five hours a day chanting, repeating a mantra over and over again. And so meditation is a big thing for me. And I don't do it, so I don't practice it so much now, but it's in it's in me, if you like. It's in my life. And juggling certainly is a meditation practice for me, for sure. Have you combined the two to sort of like, like added breathing or, or mantras to while you're juggling? Yeah, not, not mantras, but certainly, you know, conscious breathing and stuff like that, particularly if I'm doing contact. I do, I probably do two or three hours of contact every night while I'm watching Netflix or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I'm never still, you know, I'm always manipulating balls or playing with something. So, yeah, I feel that's, yeah, and that connects with breathing uh, for sure. The reason I never managed to get seven balls steady, I got up to 100 throws, no, 84 throws was my best. I was aiming for 100 throws, but I never did it because my breathing wasn't good enough and my posture wasn't good enough. I think if I'd had those two things, I'd have done much better with numbers. Let's wrap up with some final thoughts. 
what would you like people, if you had some one final word about juggling and what it means to you or what people can sort of identify with, Ben, and, you know, juggling, how would you sort of sum up your experience with juggling? Yeah, well, my experience of juggling is is, is enjoyment, is pure, is joy, you know, and I think if the book that I'm writing and that kind of stuff is all towards with people have really enjoying their practice for a long period of time, making your practice enjoyable. Not, not that so that it's hard work, but it's really enjoyable and it benefits you in many ways, not just improves your juggling, but improves your capacity to learn, improves your tolerance, improves your patience. All those things. And I think juggling is great for all of that. I think what juggling can do for people, I'm really interested in the therapeutic side of juggling rather than just the kind of improving or whatever. If I could leave anything behind, it would be getting people to really um, find that in their juggling. Have fun and keep on keep on discovering new ways to do it and not just do the same thing over and over again, but try and find new ways of doing it and enjoying it. And when do you anticipate us being able to see this book? Uh, hopefully by the British Juggling Convention next year, so April. So hopefully I'm going to get it done by December and then I'm going to start promoting it after that. So yeah, hopefully uh, early next year with any luck. And how does the future look for Ben? How, how are the shows coming back? Well, I mean, I'm, funnily enough, I'm really busy this coming weekend. I'm doing a walkabout thing tomorrow. Uh, with a mysterious character called Mr. S, who does kind of object manipulation with big silver balls and also contact juggling. Then the next day, I'm going to be entertaining some families at a picnic. And then the day after that, I'm teaching 18 to 25 year olds some manipulative skills to enhance their performance possibilities. So quite a lot of variety. I'm not doing as much performing as I did. I'm doing a lot of workshops at the moment because schools haven't been able to do their residentials at the end of their term. So they're getting jugglers in. So I've been really busy the last week and I'm really busy the next three weeks going in and teaching loads of kids, you know, basic juggling Diablo, poi, uh, hula hoops, you know, all that stuff. Well, we need people like you, Ben, for not only showing people the art of juggling through your performance, but also teaching the next generation of jugglers. And how's, how's the ukulele doing? Yeah, ukulele is good fun. I teach a bit of ukulele now, and I really enjoy that as well. It's just do things that make you happy, you know? <laughs> well, Ben, I think I'm going to try to end before we actually just get cut off. So yeah. it's always a pleasure talking to you. It was a pleasure meeting you uh, when I saw you at the EJC. Indeed. I think that was the first time we actually had met, and I, I found you very pleasant. And Yeah. And I look forward to meeting you again, Dan, sometime. Hopefully, you'll be over in the States. I hope so. How about... Uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa in 2022. I would definitely think about it. I would love to visit Iowa and uh, I'd love to experience the, the IJA for sure. Yeah. Well, we'd love to have you and thank you so much for being a guest on the Drop Everything podcast, number 98. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a pleasure. You take care now. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast, number 98. My conversation with Ben Cornish. Cheers, Ben. And thanks for the chat. All right, before we go, one more time, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Go to juggle.org and find out about this great group of jugglers. Become part of the IJA today and join the greatest group of jugglers in the world. Oh, and also go to amazon.com and look for my books. Now drop everything, except when you're juggling.